You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app. At Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number 27 of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Brian. Oh, he's back. In our last episode, Sarah and I interviewed Anonymy Labs CTO, Dr. Paul Ashley, to discuss the rapidly evolving technology of decentralized identity. Reclaiming ownership of your personal data will soon become reality. What an episode that was. Today, Mr. Metaverse is back here in studio with me to talk about open source intelligence, and in particular, how corporations and governments are using this data to not only spy on people, but to even predict the future. Brian, welcome back. Man, it's great to be in this studio. It's awesome. It's been a while, hasn't it? The energy is just electric. (laughs) Yeah, I always love having you in here. It's great to get this angle on the future of technology, where it's going, and we kind of go back and forth and um, talk about just what what is now and and what seems to be coming down the road faster than I would imagine, especially with that chat GPT thing that you did. Boy, that's changed the world, hasn't it? Oh, man. And I'm just so impressed with their ability to iterate on it. Like already since that podcast, it's been like, another version the five other ones have come out there's like just taken over the world yeah yeah and we're gonna have to do another episode i think on that one too down the road just because yeah so much has changed but it's all i hear about today is just ai and and how there's some are loving it and others are saying "Uh oh this is the end of civilization i know right but i i've been loving it i've been using it almost every day to support my work yeah yeah anything that requires more thought than uh you know 10 seconds to write out uh, it's probably being consulted yeah i was i was looking at the marketing team just yesterday and they were using it to to come up with copy for uh for websites so I, it's just it, it's it's so uncanny like how unbelievably accurate it is and it looks so conversational i know and so this was actually super interesting i know we're getting a little off topic here but i saw a post about Maybe I'll write my college essay with this, but then ask it to misspell five or six words to leave a leave a thought trailing in paragraph two. It's like, well, now they're just hacking it to even make it seem like more human. It's super interesting. It's because of like if you be a if you're somebody that used to get B's, right, you don't really want to get a uh, like an A plus all the time. So it's like, oh, let's just pull it back to get an A minus. Yeah, yeah. Let's sit at like C plus this time. Pl- plausible. <laughs> I'm sure you could ask it that. Write this at the level of C plus. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, it's going to get so hard to detect. But, you know, before we get into this story about open source intelligence and how it's being used, I wanted to touch on an article. We haven't done a news article in a while. And so I've, I found this story it is on um, this website called The Cut, and it goes back to March 2023. I had no idea about this world. So there's, have you ever heard about private judges? Has that ever crossed your plate at all? Uh, no, I yeah. didn't know that was a thing. So apparently, I guess it started out for the super elite, right? So people who are, they've got the money and they just kind of, they want to stay private. And also they use uh, private judges to expedite uh, trials, but they basically have nearly all the powers of a public judge. So people, they choose them, like I said, for two reasons. They, they want to expedite the process. And it, trials can take sometimes two to three years to even begin to get through that, to get, uh, to, get to the public court system. And then, of course, for privacy, just kind of trying to stay out of the limelight, especially if you're a celebrity, I guess. That's another one. But the, the convenience and the confidentiality is what's been driving this. But apparently a lot, a lot of just everyday people are starting to use this because they just want to keep this information on the down low. So it allows you to hire a retired judge, which I guess that's a good gig, right? Yeah. <laughs> cause, cause apparently that rate could be somewhere in California, at least around $800 per hour or a day rate of $8,000. That's some nice change to pick up, right? In yeah. Retirement. Yeah. I wish I could, make $800 per hour. (laughs) So 
So examples of people who've used private judges to handle divorce cases, and this not an exhaustive list, but just uh, some high profile ones, Elon Musk, Jennifer Aniston, Charlie Sheen, Sean Penn, Kelly Clarkson. I was not aware of that. Um, and then Arnold Schwarzenegger goes on, Chris Pratt, Kevin Garnett, Angelina Jolie, and Brad Pitt. Of course, that's a pretty famous divorce case. But yeah, so they're just, they're paying a lot of money. Keep it under the, the radar of TMZ and all the others out there that want to report on this wonderful gossip. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for that. I feel like some things need to be private, right? Especially when it comes to... You know, whether it's a relationship issue or yeah. or something like that, like it could do some harm having it so public. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. So I, they they mentioned that now it's it, this includes uh, you know groups that are using this service or just small business owners, dermatologists, hedge hedge fund managers, C suite executives, and and on and on. So it's just it's it's just a wide variety of people, and yeah, that court system continues to get more bogged down. So just it's. You know, a lot of cases today, I guess, are solved in arbitration. You really don't want to go to trial because that gets super expensive, too. And then there was a famous case going all the way back to 1980, of course, long before the Mr. Metaverse time frame when Johnny Carson <laughs> was on NBC. They they had a little spat going on and they used a private judge to resolve their long running contract dispute. But, of course, to avoid the, the press's spotlight. So. It says it was talking about how, you know, just like what Carson did, that some people hire private judges to conduct a trial explicitly to avoid that the press. And in the article it was talking about how uh, there was this one California woman who asked not to be identified because she was involved in a high profile and expensive divorce from her husband. But the woman said she had initially appeared in public court for her divorce hearings. But after walking out of the courthouse one morning, there were cameras in, you know, in their faces. And that was the point she said that she looked into the whole concept of private judges. I, I could just imagine, right? It's, you know, who wants to live like that when people are constantly hiding in the bushes looking for you, the paparazzi? So the, the privately judged cases are technically open for anyone to attend in the state of California. All right. So you could conceivably sit in and, and hear out a case uh, between Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt if we want to go back in time. But in practice, the members of the public rarely ever go because they just don't know that the trial is taking place. Mm. And there's the key. Yeah. And in most states, divorce cases are private while they are going on. But after the case is resolved, they do become public, although it's not always the case. Uh, one example is in New York. But with private judging, the public can see that rulings were issued, but none of the details of the dispute generally make it into the public record. So um, divorce is never a great topic, but, you know, it's again, it, it ties into that whole trying to keep your life as private as possible. Yeah, I mean, sounds like it's a great tool for privacy. And I'm glad that it exists because it seems like anything to do with courts always, if it's interested, people are just fascinated and try to like get in there and figure out all the details and almost like feels like they view it as like a reality TV moment where you're like, no, this is like actual reality. Like <laughs> It has become that, hasn't it? I, I mean, I remember back when the O.J. Simpson trial was live when I was living in Southern California, just thinking to myself, I can't believe this is being aired live. Yeah. I think that kind of started the whole process now where everybody's so interested in that. You remember People's Court uh, goes all the way back to like Judge Wapner and, and now there's, you know, that reality judges and courts have been a big thing too now. People love that stuff. Daytime TV. But Judge yeah. Judy. Judge Judy. Oh, yeah. Judge Judy for sure. So yeah, just something else to keep in mind. Everything is out there in public. And I've done some research before in the past when I was looking at the companies and different people. And it's, it's really shocking how much is public record. There's so much out there that if you have the time and you have the motivation, the stuff that you can learn, it almost seems like it's just not right. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it should be publicly available information. But anyway... So with that, we'll wrap that part of the episode. Now let's go up and let's get down to the business of OSINT. So I guess uh, today's episode is more of a conversation. We've had some pretty in-depth, intense episodes with Sarah. We're working on some really tough topics. So I thought today, you know, with you coming in here, Brian, I thought we'd just have more of a kind of a conversational episode and just kind of, it's still a, it's a difficult topic, right? It, it makes you feel uncomfortable. I mean, it's fascinating too. like a little uncomfortable, a little creepy, but also a little bit of like, man, I feel empowered. And maybe that's a little foreshadowing. But uh, yeah, OSINT in the hands of everyday people can be pretty impressive. 
There's the, the good and the bad side to all these stories. Okay, so Brian, let's open up a case file on open source intelligence. So I think the, for me, as I was going through some of the articles, it does seem like the common theme always comes back to the AI and the machine learning, right? It's, it's just, it's so powerful today. You could do the language analysis of a social media profile. You could, you do language analysis of the entire internet. And you could just use the the common occurrences of the most used words and determine what's going on today, right? Bring I know. The future. Those technologies and algorithms, and and they're very accessible too. Like, uh, you know, it's one thing that comes to mind right away when I think of this is how Twitter had some accounts that would literally track private jets of any billionaire, if you will, because it was public available data and they just like built it into a little algorithmic feed that just constantly kept tabs on all of these high profile people. Oh, the, the Elon Musk story keeps raising its ugly yeah, head because yeah. he, he hates that. I, I question whether that's the real reason he bought Twitter is just to shut down that account, but we'll see. Oh, that's right. It was, a, it was actually just a, it was a Twitter account. Yeah. Just yeah. to track where he was flying. Yeah, exactly. Oh boy. So I guess the, the good approach first here is just to start out with, you know, the what what is open source intelligence, right? It's it's OSINT. So it's basically the practice of collecting information from published or otherwise publicly available sources. It's that simple, right? If it's available out there in the open space and you and I can access it, it's OSINT. Yeah, I mean, the treasure trove of OSINT seems to be social media as well. I mean... TikTok has thousands, millions of videos that all have descriptions and tags and and are kind of built up for categorizing and, and exploring all this massive data that's now on the Internet. Like with anything, there's the, the good side and the bad side, right? So in the world of OSINT, it can be used by IT security pros or malicious hackers or state sanctioned intelligence operatives. So they're, they're all getting in on this. And in fact, I, from what I was able to uh, ascertain in my research, you know, the CIA and the NSA, a lot of what they do now is just, it's out there, right? It's, it's basically just third party available research. They're not even having to go out there and do it on their own. Yeah. And this is where the, if you ever watch the Spectre movie, the, the newer James Bond, I feel like that whole plot, this is really where I first got into OSINT. It was, you know, James Bond has to go against the new keyboard warrior uh company that is you know using osin and he has to prove that one man can gather and still do the job that uh is slowly being taken away by algorithms and people sitting behind a computer watching videos yeah so much could be done now for just from a computer so just a little bit on the history uh, during the 1980s the military and intelligence services they began to shift some of their information gathering activities away from covert activities like trying to read an adversary's mail, tapping into their phones, discovering hidden secrets. And then they moved into the area of just looking for this useful intelligence that was just freely available, right? Just freely accessible to anyone. Um, and now, of course, again, with these sophisticated algorithms that are being built to use um, in platforms, of course, like ChatGPT. I mean, it's much more powerful than you and I individually can can sift through and sit down and figure out or make sense of, right? This requires sophisticated math. So, you know, why is OSINT so important? Well, it basically just helps you get a sense of what's going on today. Instead of, I would think about, you know, when I was in grad school, we, we did a lot of studying on market research. And so there was primary research, which is you personally going out and collecting that data, right? You're you interview somebody, you sit down and you do a focus group or you put together a formal uh, questionnaire and then you send it to a group of people, right? And you get information back and then you you process it, you crunch the numbers. But today it's like the world is an ongoing experiment. If you can tap into the information that is being produced by the world in real time, I don't even have to do any kind of like primary research anymore. I mean, it's it's just there. It's yeah, crazy. It is nuts when you say like an unending experiment. Thinking more through about this, this publicly available information that's just waiting to be tapped into. I think about like on the on the marketing and business side, grocery stores. I don't know if they how much of this they still do, but I know going through some of my research when I was studying marketing that 
the cameras, like the closed circuit cameras, sometimes are used by stores and brands to evaluate traffic flow through a grocery store. And people are surprised at just how calculated the layout of products are in a grocery store. Like there, there's a reason why everything is where it is, right? The milk is in the back, the produce is on one side, you've got the the tooth, toothpaste and other things on the other side. And then you've got all the easily consumable, like the chips and the drinks are sitting right there. when you walk in the door, right? It's all, it's all based on research. And, you know, when you walk into a store, you're essentially in the public eye and that just your flow and movement and picking up things and looking at them and based on colors and, and layouts and shapes and the, the mood based on the music and the smells in the store. I mean, all of this is being, broken down and crunched into these algorithms to figure out, do they move uh, the milk here? Do they move the bananas over here? Or what about the prices? Or sometimes it's, if a, something is yellow, like I remember there's a, there was a research study one time that has something to do with like putting something yellow, like bananas next to motor oil and motor oil sales increased, right? It just, it's weird stuff like that, but, but in a microcosmic sense in that grocery store, you're, you're seeing all of this stuff happening and that's data, right? It's, it's an ongoing experiment, but that's what the real world is, right? And so with, with that said, let's kind of transition into this story about how local grocery stores are using surveillance tech to watch you. Okay, so this is more into the crime area. So this was from a website called Smart Company from February of 2023, and I don't, I don't know if you pronounce this Auror, but it's A-U-R-O-R. It's a little known crime intelligence platform that is used in thousands of stores across Australia, including Coles and Woolworths. I don't even, are there Woolworths in the U.S. anymore? You seen I, one? I've never seen one of those. Yeah. So privacy experts are raising concerns about how the use and potential misuse of a private company's crime surveillance network um, uh, you know, how that can be misused you know, basically without any oversight. So, so Auror, I hope I'm saying that right. And it, it was started by four Kiwi friends, as they say. So I'm assuming they're from New Zealand in 2013. Their pitch was they were going to solve the $100 billion in retail theft each year by helping companies collect information on what happens in their stores and make it crazy is yeah I, I used to work retail back in high school yeah at a, a unnamed location maybe so i don't reveal their secrets but we had a number on the wall that was a goal for how many items to get stolen a day and it was oh. like try to get 13 items stolen today it's like that's the goal and some days you know we could count our inventory and notice that We've lost 50 items that day instead of 13. But it was just so interesting that like one of our business metrics, if you will, as a team was to keep stolen goods down. But then our training videos would be, oh, you can't approach anybody that's going to try to steal. It, yeah. It's a big no-no. So it's like, how do we even control that number? What's interesting about that too is the grocery store business is such a low profit margin business. I think in some cases it's only... It's, it's under 5%. It's somewhere like one, two, 3% profit margin. And so if somebody walks out the door with a hundred dollar bottle of whiskey or something, let's say they, they take that out the door. So you have to sell basically like almost a thousand dollars worth of merchandise to make up. Well, actually more, I'm sorry. You, you've got to, yeah, you've got to sell quite a bit more than that because you're, again, your profit margins are only at one, two, 3%. So when you have theft in a grocery store, it's a big deal because they're really running on razor thin margins. So this software that's being used in these grocery stores and other stores in Australia, that this information is being shared with uh, local, local law enforcement. So its product is an online platform for logging incidents, everything from theft to accidents in stores, parking lots to hate crimes. Now, users are prompted to submit information about what happened using descriptions of the subject, images, closed circuit TV footage, license plate information, and even social media content, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, this quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? MySudo is the world's only all-in-one app that gives you back control of your privacy. 
By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using dating apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each pseudo also includes a private web browser with ad and tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. To learn more, visit MySudo.com. That's MySudo.com. Stay private. So the users of the software, they can search through reports by people's names and by products stolen, and individual stores and companies can see the overviews of the information and analyze the report data by location and time, which the company said would help prevent future crime. You wonder how much of this is going on here in the United States, right? Every time you walk in a store. I mean, have you been in an Amazon Go ever? No, but somebody was telling me the other day about it. Yeah, I, I have not personally, but I watched a bunch of videos when it came out. And the stores are just like every angle of every surface has a camera, sensors, everything. And my mind goes to like, you know, not only is it just is it tracking your every movement in there, it's connected with your Amazon account is, I mean, it just seems set up perfectly to build a personal shopping persona for you and use all that data. Yeah. What you look at, you're going to get an ad online advertisement, you know, 10 days later at the ketchup that you stared at for five <laughs> seconds, right? Like, yeah, there was, we had a coworker the other day was telling me um, here in uh, downtown Salt Lake at the basketball arena where uh, the Utah Jazz play that there's a similar store, but it's run, it's an Amex store. Hmm. And I, I've never been down there, so I, I don't know, but he showed me pictures and it's, it's a similar process, right? There's nobody really working in there. And I think you, you have to take your Amex card. And you kind of scan it over the little reader and then the little kind of plastic or glass doors open up and let you into the store. And then it's just basically you just help yourself. You pick things up and you just walk right out the door and somehow magically it just charges you for everything. But he showed me a picture of the ceiling. There must have been 200 cameras up there. It's insane. And where, where is all that information yeah, being like, stored? Where, what's happening I feel with like it? with that, you could build like a 3D model of, you know, your shoppers and run like simulations or something. I don't know. But right now, I mean, that's the outlier, right? Those are the test cases, but that's coming. You go in grocery stores today, how many of those checkout lines are actually being occupied by a, a human being, right? Mostly they're pushing you more toward the self-service, self-checkout. Not a fan. Yeah. I I maybe I just like making a little chit chat or something and not having to bag my own grudge. Like I even get upset when they don't have an extra bagger there, you know, so you end up bagging your own stuff, even though they're scanning it still speeds things up. But anyways, it just seems like that's every time I go into a store, it just seems like the self checkout area continues to expand and that they're telling you a pretty strong message, right? So Aura is also used, of course, to track people. They say, while it doesn't offer facial recognition, its use of machine learning helps identify individuals across different reports. It allows users to input features about an individual's appearance, such as hair color, age, and build. Now, it also analyzes photographs or footage to suggest these features and then checks across other reports to link it to an existing profile of an individual, if relevant. Now, this allows the software to recognize individuals across its network, even if the user isn't aware of other users' reports. So the platform can send mobile phone notifications to let users know when an individual has been reported at another location or using automatic license plate recognition if a car has been spotted by any of the cameras on the network. Now, an important part of Aura's appeal or Aura's appeal is the integration with police or local law enforcement. The platform is designed to help users share data with police by generating what they're calling an evidence box in just a few clicks. So the software makes it simple for police to access records generated by automatic license plate recognition technology, instantly turning a company's individual cameras into a worldwide car tracking network. Ooh. Oh boy. Yeah. So, so police are given a real time alert if, if or detects a license plate linked to a car of interest, a suspected stolen vehicle, for example, and then is detected by a camera in their network. So, during a 2018 interview at a US based retail loss conference, I didn't know there was conventions on retail loss. That's, that's <laughs> another topic, I guess. 
an interviewer named Gus Downing summarized its appeal to police. He said, quote, it acts as the investigative arm for law enforcement. All they have to do is punch in and boom, they got them. That's it. That's, that's some lazy policing right there, huh? Yeah. I mean, it, it does kind of give me a sense of like, I would love for our police officers not to be spending their time on these lower grocery store crimes, but it's important, right? It needs to be policed. So I'm glad it's getting a little more efficient. And to close out this story, so it says today or uh, boasts having 75,000 retail users across 32,000 stores in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and the UK. It said it's working with 40% of Australia's retail market, including places such as Woolworths, Coles, Bunnings, and Meyer, and records more than 100,000, quote, crime events each month. So all of this going on without probably many people being aware of it. You know, it's funny. I just thought about it that or is actually, I don't know if it is from Harry Potter, but it is the word for the people that are tracking down dark wizards. No way. Yeah. So I, they might've taken that from Harry Potter. I don't, but we'll see. I think you were saying it right. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, there's, there's something about words, right? So I'm sure there has to be a connection there. So, I mean, back to kind of what started this whole idea of doing this episode together is you were talking about several weeks ago, you were coming across a lot of news reports about, I guess, social media being used as a predictive model to identify when when things were going bad, if there were possible revolutions or maybe in unstable governments or even in cases where they were tracking the U.S. military, you know, where we had, there was a secret base somewhere and they were able to use an app to determine, oh, there must be a base there because there's a bunch of people running in circles. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, that's kind of how this got started. And that specific one was someone noticed in the Strava heat map data with the running app that people in the middle of the desert were running a very military-like circle around an area and ended up, you know, once you find that data, you can then somehow get satellite access. You know, that's readily available now. If you pay a little bit of money, I think you can get a pretty real-time satellite version. Uh, and, I mean, it's turning these people that have just noticed a coincidence in the data into full-on spies for either the U.S. government or on any government. Yeah, I mean, you can really turn anybody into James Bond nowadays. When you're thinking about the military, I mean, they should know better. I mean, the phone is basically your, it is the ultimate tracking device. I mean, why would they allow uh, soldiers to be carrying their phones around? Yeah. Good question. It's got to be something. something Is it inhumane not to have a phone nowadays? (laughs) But uh, the other story that really, really piqued my interest on this was when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of speculation. Will it happen? Will it not? You know? And people were kind of very hesitant to say one way or the other. But there were a couple of stories of how months before this, a company called DOS Chemicals, Mm -hmm. they have their own internal corporate surveillance team. And the reason why a lot of these big multinational companies have these and they're forming it's I think I was reading an article that almost like 90% of international companies now have some form of surveillance for what countries are going to be unrest. Should we invest money in this area or is it unstable and we should pull out our resources and focus somewhere else? And so it turns out that this team had identified just because they were looking at their property and stuff like that in the area of Ukraine and Russia, that they could find that Russians were building up their troops. They were dropping off supplies and and they were blowing the whistle as like this had nothing to do with military tactics. But they weeks, I think even like a month or two before, were like, hey, something's going on here. We're at least going to get all of our corporate assets secured type thing. But not even just corporations. There was someone that was just perusing TikTok. I think it was uh, Switzerland or something like that. And he started seeing a few videos of people. You know, you always, like even me, when I see something off, like a a line of tanks going down a train tracks in Utah, I'm like, oh, 
what is that? Should I post this? Should, do other people, could they tell me like why there's tanks moving through Utah? Like, and so that was basically what they're happening in Ukraine. People posting on TikTok of all these Russian troops dropping off supplies in nearby villages to the Ukraine border. And then this guy was like, oh, that is super interesting. Now I'm going to go to my satellite imagery software and just look at it. And he could see a full scale change between a couple of months to now where there was a full Russian like brigade on the the lines of Ukraine. And so it just like some random internet scroller ended up getting the super sensitive information that I'm sure governments want that as soon as possible. And so it led me to think like there's got to be big government programs to investigate the use of OSIN. It's, it's like the it's like the ultimate example of crowdsourcing because the whole public now, pretty much everybody has got a smartphone. I mean, I, everywhere you go, I mean, so you've got a camera, you got a listening device, you got a tracking device. It's all built into the same, the same tool. And you don't have to go out and hire a bunch of spies. It's just all you got to do is sit, sit in your control center and just monitor social media. Well, Hey, you were telling me earlier, you know, you use ways every day. That's basically the same concept, right? It's just yeah. everybody's banding together to let them know where the cops are and where the speed traps. It's just nuts. You know, you mentioned too, you know, the corporations are getting involved in some of this intelligence. So they've kind of privatized a little bit of that effort, but you know, in a few weeks, we're going to have a corporate spy come on the podcast, which is going to be fascinating as well. That is going to be one of the best podcasts. Yeah, I'm for sure listening to that right when it comes out. Yeah, somebody had spent, uh, I think it was five, 10 years literally working to to basically conduct espionage on some of the world's largest companies. It just, and and how, and it, it was all basically, it's all uh, social engineering, right? They always say the weakest link it's not your servers and your firewalls and all that. It's just, it's the human, right? If you befriend somebody and you kind of pretend you're a certain person, you can get a lot of information out of someone. You can have all the security, but if someone gives, you know, leaves their password on a sticky note, the system's going to crumple. Yeah, no doubt. Let's circle back uh, one more time here to a story related to crime. This one is not necessarily grocery stores in particular. I found this article from SciTech Daily. In July, uh, it was posted July 2022, and it says that a, a new computer model now uses publicly available data to predict crime accurately in eight cities in the United States. And some of the cities they mentioned, so Chicago, Atlanta, Austin, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Portland, and San Francisco. The University of Chicago data and social scientists, they've developed a new algorithm that forecasts crime by learning patterns in time and geographic locations from public data on violent and property crimes. It's demonstrated success at predicting future crimes one week in advance with approximately 90% accuracy. It's crazy. I don't really comprehend how you do that. The only thing that always gets me a little, you know, the kind of the, kind of the more of the, putting the tinfoil hat back on here, but a lot of authoritarian states, they like to use what's called pre-crime. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, but it's like everybody pretty much says, okay, well, if you kill somebody, that's probably, uh, that's probably illegal, right? You're going to go to prison for that. But if I can tell you that, well, Brian, I've noticed that when you eat planters peanuts two times a day, that you are 25% more likely to murder somebody or some crazy thing like that, right? A precursor to an actual, a real crime. You get into this area of pre-crime. And so what kind of concerns me a little bit with the tinfoil hat on is when you get to a world where the AI is getting supposedly so good that now we actually start criminalizing seemingly innocuous activities like things mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's an, it's, it's an extreme example that I mentioned, but that's what starts to worry me. Like, oh, well, we've got the data here that says, you know, if you do this and this and X and Y and whatever that there's an 85 or 90% chance that you're going to commit this kind of a crime. So therefore we've got enough evidence to, to do this to you, right? That that's the part that kind of mm, concerns me a little bit. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think that's where it could go. You've got the data and they can make a case that it's that, that good at forecasting something that always starts to get me a little concerned, right? This is the George Orwell stuff. 
DNA I mean, to me, though, it's got to be 100%, right? If sure. you're dealing with, like, actual committal of a crime, it, yeah. you know, it, even 99% isn't, like, proving innocence or guilty, in my mind at least. So hopefully yeah. I have like-minded people making the, the laws and, and regulations around this. We, we hope, right? So the new model, it isolates crime by looking at the time and spatial coordinates of discrete events and detecting patterns to predict future events. It divides the city into spatial tiles that are roughly 1,000 feet across and predicts crime within these areas instead of relying on traditional neighborhood or political boundaries, which are also subject to bias. Uh, the model performed just as well with data from seven other cities, and I mentioned those uh, already. So there are basically eight in this example. It does... <laughs> When they're talking about, um, you know, how they traditionally reported crime, like by neighborhood. I remember when I was growing up, used to have like, they call it like the police blotter in the local newspaper. You'd see like, oh, there was a car stolen two blocks from here. Whatever. Yeah. Mm. It, it's like almost like classified ads, but it was just listed in the section of the newspaper. You would see property theft and just petty crime and things like that. But that's, it was kind of hard to do much with that because you, you're just reading it and there's, you're not really categorizing it. So. Kind of, kind of difficult to tell. Maybe if you were in a bad mood, and you had, a, you were having a bad day, you're like, yeah. "Oh, my neighborhood's just full of crime." <laughs> but it might be just like any other neighborhood, and you just don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, they, closing it out, they mentioned you can use this information basically as a simulation tool to see what happens if crime goes up in one area of the city, or there is increased enforcement in another area. Hmm. So that's you know application of this type of tool. It's using OSINT basically for predictions. Creating yeah. forecast models. And speaking of focusing on crime, I also came across a list of ways that government agencies are using OSINT currently. And I thought it was pretty interesting, especially some of the uses didn't initially come to my mind as like, oh, so let's go through this list just real quickly. Sure. We got counterterrorism, which seems like a no-brainer to me, right? They talk about how the government is really tracking social media, forums, stuff like that, that are known for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and groups like that to communicate with and disrupting their online communication, kind of forming a barrier to getting a large audience together in communication, that kind of stuff. Uh, we got cybersecurity, another no-brainer. Right, that they're using these tools to track and detect cyber attacks. Analysts utilize the tools to monitor surface web and dark web and discussion forums, digital marketplaces to uncover any discussion of breached data or planned cyber attacks. Yeah, dark web, that's another topic coming up for a future episode as well. Oh, that, that one's that, gonna that, get a that, little that's crazy. Be, yeah, that's gonna be interesting. Another one is organized crime. Like you were saying, they uh, are, are tracking anything to do with, you know, even human trafficking, arms, large scale fraud, money laundering, using a lot of the chatter out on the internet to understand those movements and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, it all comes down to like really mass language analysis is really what it is, which it, again is really a, a technique used in, in market research when you do uh, focus groups or in-depth interviews. You literally, you can categorize how many times, how frequently a term is repeated. And then you can, you can actually do some statistical analysis on that. And they're just doing this now at unbelievable mass scale. Seriously. And, and this is where it got a little bit of like, oh, these are actually some really interesting uses for OSINT, but uh, natural disasters and global health crises, they're in the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster. Social media is commonly one of the earliest sources of information. And so it's allowing them to have thousands of people filming, giving data, updating statuses of like, what is in crisis? Where does where should we send more resources? And and almost building hotspots of like of the most damaged areas to the the least damaged areas, so they can effectively provide assistance, which is super cool. Yeah, yeah. I was telling you before we started recording that there was a, somebody who was looking into. I don't remember when it was, but I believe it was Japan though. And when there there was a typhoid that was coming through, and it wasn't perfect, but you when you followed, I think it was Twitter activity, looking at the the time that people were talking about the words that they were using, you could literally almost, it was almost parallel the analysis of that activity on social media or Twitter to the direction or the track the uh, the typhoon was taking. 
it, it was almost like overlapping each other. And so that's the power of it. If everybody, if you've got the network effect, everyone's on a particular tool, you could really use it to do some incredible analysis of what's going on far away. That That is crazy. Yeah. The tracking a typhoon's movements with silly posts on, on yeah. Facebook. But, uh, and then the last one out here on this list, which I actually think was the most interesting, is governments are using it to plan out the development of their city. And so going back to the fitness apps like Strava and stuff like that, as, as well as the traffic apps like uh, Waze and that kind of stuff, they're using all of this crowdfunded heat maps and stuff like that to understand where to invest in the infrastructure of their city. Where are people out there running? When, where do we need a new running path? Where is the, the traffic going down or, or that kind of stuff? And it's even found to be more accurate than the street cameras that they have everywhere, the tracking the car count, that kind of stuff. Oh, the, the little the uh, the little rubber tube that they would put across the street to count the cars to turn if they have to widen yeah, the roads. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, why do you need to do that when you know how many cars are going past there? You just have to look at Waze or Google Maps or anything like that, which Google Maps ability to predict traffic now is blowing my mind. I've had, I mean, it's probably been about a year and a half now that they have always estimated my time of arrival correctly. Oh, it's uncanny. And and I used to not trust it. I used to be like, oh, you know, there might be a wreck or something like that, but they know and they readjust. And I, I just am blown away with how the algorithm has been able to grow over time with the mass amount of data that they're collecting yeah, on drivers. When I, yeah, when I use like Apple, the Apple map feature and I type in the destination I want to go if I'm traveling a few hours away, it is unbelievable, like down to the minute how accurate it is based on, you know, your speed of travel, road conditions ahead, and it, it nails it every single time. Yeah. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly four and a half million dollars, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. Incino Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. Built for developers by developers, from identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Pseudo Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit pseudoplatform.com. That's pseudoplatform.com. So then there is this other article. You've been hearing a lot about, again, language analysis is getting so sophisticated with AI and machine learning that you could comb through unimaginable volumes of social media activity to actually pinpoint when mass protest movements are about to take place. All right. So there's this article, the University of Virginia's website. Uh, it's actually, I think it's their data science department. And it talks about how in 2011, the, the unforeseen outbreak of mass social movements in the Middle East caught the U.S. government and Arab regimes completely by surprise. The, the ensuing political contagion known as the Arab Spring was in many ways played out on the stage of popular social networks such as Twitter and Facebook. And this, I think this was the first time that people started taking notice about the kind of another way to be able to use social media, right? It's not just this stupid, well, I'm just going to get on here and post where I'm eating today and oh brian's having sushi or whatever right yeah it's like now i can cause the butterfly effect of an entire movement right yeah exactly so it's it says here that the uh, the arab spring raised a critical question can social network data be used to better understand and even predict outbreaks of mass protest movements uh, so this was a collaborative project uh, between a, a couple of uh, professors or researchers they used a massive database of tweets collected from Arab Twitter users during the first six months of the Arab Spring covering hundreds of protest events. They employed a statistical computer model to examine popular grievances expressed on Twitter and their connections to later outbreaks of protest activity. These two researchers explored how the Twitter network foreshadowed mass unrest and how it was used to build and sustain momentum among pro-democracy movements. And the complex nature of these online networks, they illustrate the challenges of big data while promising to shed light on a subject never before studied in such detail, which is the anatomy of a revolution. 
Wow. So yeah, and this, and again, that was, you know, that's over 10 years ago when, when that was being uh, talked about. So today, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about TikTok and the concerns there. Yeah. And honestly, I think we're just jumping into the deep end here of like the power that this type of surveillance really has. Like just hypothetically, like if a government wanted to predict and, and silence a revolution or something like that, they can, well, Let's play it both sides here. They could either use it for their own benefit and maybe provide misinformation or have a way to be able to completely divide the, sure. the people that are unrest. Or on the other side, they can actually get better knowledge of what they need to fix with their country, what the people are really wanting. But who gets to make those decisions after you, you comb through the data? Oh, that's always the question, right? There was, um, I don't know if you saw this recently, I, I think it was the FBI and the FBI released, and, and again, this, this is this is where you start getting in again, a little bit into the tinfoil hat area where you start wondering, is this being done on purpose, right? So the FBI re released, I don't think, if this came out in that recent leak uh, that happened where that young guy got arrested, mm -hmm. he was a National Guardsman or something, and he, you know, he had top security clearance leaked. I don't know if it came out through that or some other means, but apparently the FBI had some keywords that they're now looking for online, which when I looked at the words, they were like, don't really think that telegraphs a future terrorist or anything. But, but then I started wondering, are is that information getting leaked out because they want to get you thinking about it? That, you know, hey, wink, wink, we're watching you, right? Mm. It's, it's almost like a little message. Like maybe those words really don't mean anything at the end of the day, but it's just a little technique that they leak out there just to say, hey, you know, we're, we're over here just monitoring what's going on on there. So maybe you want to kind of tone it down, you know? Uh, yeah. You, you yeah, got to yeah. wonder. You, you got to wonder. So it might be another form of manipulation. I know there's been stories too in the past where you know, some of the CIA operatives, they go down to Central America or South America and they try to kind of sow the seeds of discord by planting misinformation so they because the government wants to put in their own little puppet leader. Mm, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's that activity. But when you have social media now, you don't have to really, you don't even have to get on an airplane and go down there. You just sit at your little command control center and just type away. Yeah, yeah. And it almost kind of feels like some of the bigger countries, especially China and, and the U.S., will almost get an arms race on this. You know, any really powerful technology, I mean, just take the you know, nuclear bomb, if you will. And there was just this like continued push for people to innovate on such a extreme powerful object that ended up going just completely out of control. And I really hope that we're not getting in the same type of race with this, where then the surveillance in all the, these countries are just unimaginable. And you start to lose a little bit of your your freedom and and you feel like you're being watched all the time. Yeah, you hear a lot of people saying on the news that kind of like the U.S. and China are already in this little cold war, but it's it's being fought in the cyber world. The, the you know, little cyber attacks going on and you don't you don't hear a lot about it. And there's probably a lot of stuff we'll never hear about. But that's kind of the new frontier of warfare, I think, in a way. It's like it's not the old school dropping bombs as much as it is because everything is in on the Internet. If I can just find a way to hack into it, I can mess with you and, and I can ruin your day a lot more with that than I can dropping bombs and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to ignore the fact that we have millions of TikTok users in the U.S. And if the company really does have connections to the Chinese government by dance, that they might use that tool in a way of, like you were saying, spreading misinformation, you know, and it's not too far of a leap. Yeah. And it's, it's in, it's in millions of hands. And, um, you know, if you're a content creator, you're passionate about it because you're making money, you're making a living off of that. You saw when the, this latest effort of trying to ban TikTok in the United States, a lot of content creators started, you know, they went down to DC, you know, they're protesting, right? Cause that's, they put all their eggs in one basket, right? When you do that, you're, you're always risking if that platform ever goes away or you get deplatformed, there goes your income too. Yeah. That's so. a risky investment. Yeah. All right, Brian, I think we're going to bring it home with this final story from Stanford University's human-centered artificial intelligence department research arm. This is pretty interesting stuff. You brought this to my attention. I think this is also part of what kind of got you thinking about this topic for the episode. The uh, title is Reimagining Espionage in the Era 
of artificial intelligence. And the kind of the subheader here basically just says armchair researchers and ordinary citizens are changing the rules of spycraft. And this uh, expert, her name is Amy Zegert. Amy explains how U.S. agencies must adapt as this new exploding era of open source intelligence really is is taken off and becoming uh, much more powerful than the old traditional ways of spycraft. So, so Amy, uh, she spent much of her career studying the interplay between new technology and intelligence gathering, and she's a she's a senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman uh, Spogli Spogli Institute for International Studies, uh, also at the Hoover Institution, as well as chair of the HAI Steering Committee on International Security. She has written extensively about how artificial intelligence and torrents of new open source information are upending traditional spycraft. So, so basically, she's saying here in the new AI era. That sophisticated intelligence can come from almost anywhere, whether it's an armchair researcher, private technology companies like you were talking about, you know, doing some of that more private industry type of spying and intelligence and predicting mass movements of militaries and, and other government surveillance. Also, it can be used by commercial satellites and ordinary citizens who live stream on Facebook. So she served, Amy served on this task force of top experts. They warned that the U.S. intelligence community which is essentially a collection of 18 spy agencies across the government, uh, is, quote, it's entering 2021 flatly behind the technology curve. What do you think about that? I, I, would, I would tend to agree. Yeah, I think just given the most recent uh, debates about recent technology in Congress that I watched, <laughs> it seems like the questions that they were asking were uh, a little elementary. Well, uh, what's like, the Internet? <laughs> yeah, it's like, where's the button to turn it off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did watch some of the hearings that they did with TikTok, and I guess there is the CEO ByteDance. He was being uh, questioned. I wanted to watch it to like pick apart TikTok and be like, "Oh yeah. man, you know they are actually doing it." But I ended up just being like, "He seems reasonable." Oh yeah, he seems super reasonable. He's answering all these questions really well. I guaranteed they're. I didn't feel like they were asking the right security questions. Sure, but for the questions he was asked, I I appreciated the answers he had. Yeah, I felt the same way. I, I I watched some clips of it and I thought, that sounds kind of like reasonable to me. Yeah, I was like, doesn't sound like anything different than what Facebook and yeah. everybody else is doing. Yeah, except they've got, you know, they've got their arm army of uh, lobbyists, you know, in Capitol. Ooh, you know, yeah. So that's probably part of it, right? So in this article, they, they talk about how the, uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, they created this report that warned that U.S. intelligence agencies have become risk averse and too wedded to traditional espionage. And it urges that agencies have to make more use of publicly accessible open source data and using AI to make sense out of all of that uh, data, if you will. And I, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the, the government moves slowly, right? It takes them a long time to adapt. You've been to the DMV, right? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, good luck go, going there through COVID. I think I waited like weeks to get my driver's license renewed during COVID because it was just like, oh, you have to make a time slot and the next one is in six months. <laughs> <laughs> so the the, uh, the primary the primary obstacle to intelligence innovation uh, they're saying in this, in, our, in this article, is not technology, it's culture. Many of these problems stem from an intelligence community's culture that is resistant to change. Relying on traditional tradecraft and ironically, given the popular perception, averse to risk-taking, particularly to acquiring and adopting new technology. So, yeah, so they just, they continue going through some of these problems that exist and how they really need to start utilizing more artificial intelligence with uh, when it comes to espionage. So one of the questions that was asked here in this article is how is artificial intelligence and the firehose of incoming data upending traditional business of intelligence or just the traditional business of intelligence and gathering and analysis? So they covered what's clear. They're calling the five mores, I guess, uh, these new technologies that are driving this. And these five mores are changing the intelligence business in dramatic ways, they explain. The, the first is more threats, more types of nefarious actors who can threaten across vast geographic distances in cyberspace. Obviously, I think there's a lot of that going on between the U.S. and China, probably. I'm sure other countries like Russia as well. Uh, and they say, from the dawn of history until the invention of the Internet in the 1960s, two things provided security, right? power and geography. 
But that's no longer the case in the world of cyberspace because now anyone can threaten across borders without firing a single shot, <laughs> right? As we mentioned, because good, good and bad neighborhoods are all connected online. It's so true. It's like there is, like the, the boundary lines, the way we used to think about things is just not the same today, right? You're, if you're online, you're vulnerable. We, had a, we did a couple of episodes, a two-part series a, a few back on smart devices, and, you know, as convenient, as cool as they are, if you've got a device connected to the network, you have vulnerability, right? And that could be somebody down the street or could be somebody halfway around the world. So they're, they're saying, obviously, there's no oceans, there's no mountain ranges protecting us. But at the same time, power isn't what it used to be. So the U.S. is the most powerful actor in cyberspace and also the most vulnerable actor in cyberspace because we are so digitally connected. That's true. And then, of course, you, sometimes you hear about the, uh, I know it's going off a little bit of topic, but the uh, EMP weapons, right? With the grid, mm -hmm. right? EMP weapon goes off. Boom. We're, you're basically, you're back to the Stone Age. Yeah. Devices don't work. Electricity's out. I mean, just think about it. Like some other smaller militaries wouldn't be wearing their Strava connected gear running around with that. Like, that's just one little example of how, like, being technologically advanced, we open ourselves up for more visibility. Yeah, no doubt. And they go into the, the second moray, which is data. So they say, thanks to new technologies, the amount of data on Earth is doubling every 24 months. I know. Wow. I don't, I don't know what the capacity of the human brain is, but it's becoming a little too much, I think, right? We're distracted by so many things, the phone, the notifications, the email, it's constant. It's nonstop. Netflix, unending. You can binge forever. And and when you get into exponentials, it is going to be uncontrollable here in a few, maybe even years. We'll, we'll evolve quickly and we'll start having like the big alien heads with the to hold the huge brains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or we'll have uh, what our Neuralink yes. microchips to be able to hook up to chat GTP and, you know, I'll never have to even type it in on the computer. I can just spit out essays now, you know. With one thought. Oh, that's true. The the Elon Musk technology, yeah. So they're saying that it's an astounding amount of information and much of it for, is from open sources that are publicly available, where it used to be that intelligence agencies had to hunt for secrets. Uh, now they're drowning in data. And that's, right, the analysis paralysis situation. Mm. Yeah. Big data, right? The promise of big data. So traditionally, intelligence reports started with clandestine material and then sprinkled open source information on top. So some people in, in this article, and the author says, I count myself among them, argue it should now be the opposite. So start with the open source intelligence and then see how it fits with what comes from clandestine sources, which that's an interesting approach. Yeah, right? it's almost like your, your agents now become fact checkers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, the, the James Bond now sits at a desk. And then the key here is to use open source intelligence the key to using that really is processing it through artificial intelligence. That's, that's really, because again, no human can process all this data. It's too much. So they go, the, the third moray is more speed. So information is traveling at greater speeds. Decision-making is happening at greater speeds and we need intelligence insights much faster. So they, they talk about uh, an example uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. President Kennedy had 13 days to deliberate in secret about what his next move would be. Uh, after the U-2 spy planes discovered that Soviet missiles were in Cuba. And then on 9-11, you know, President George W. Bush at the time had just 13 hours to weigh intelligence about who was responsible for that attack and how the U.S. would respond. Now, today, decision time could be literally in 13 minutes or less. Oh. So you go back to your nuclear missile uh, uh, conversation. Can you imagine having to make decisions like that in 10 minutes? I could not. Hopefully I had my coffee first. <laughs> <laughs> and so the fourth of the of five mores, the fourth one here is the expanding number of decision makers who need intelligence. Uh, who counts as a decision maker today? They, they're asking, right? It's, it's not just people with security clearances. It's tech company leaders. It's Twitter and Facebook, other companies that exercise more global influence than most governments. It's voters getting public service announcements about foreign election interference so the intelligence community needs to think about how it produces analysis for all these other decision makers outside of the U.S. government. And then the final, the fifth and final moray is more competition. 
more competitors in the collection analysis of intelligence. So intelligence is anybody's business now, right? It's open to anybody. Uh, and one example that they use here was the raid on Osama bin Laden. The Pakistani military didn't see U.S. forces coming, but a local guy heard the helicopters and he was live tweeting the whole time it was happening, right? Anybody can be an intelligence collector or analyst today, whether realizing it or not. One challenge for intelligence agencies is figuring out how to harness the insights from this open source world. Yeah, I mean, just going over all this stuff today, it makes me feel like I could download like 10 separate little uh, OSIN products, get maybe like eight other friends together, sit in a room and you could start a spy company, right? Yeah. Like a pretty effective one, I would yeah. hope. I know there's... Um I don't know. I think there was a, some group of people that were doing that too, like on the border, trying to help customs officials tracking, you know, who's trying to cross at night or whatever. And you basically sit at home and you just have a webcam, right? You just, you get online and you sit there monitoring the webcam. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that AI can probably do that better now, but there, there's a lot of activity going on where people do that just from home using their webcams. So yeah, crowdsourcing, that's what it's all about. Yeah, talk about the ring doorbells that you oh, yeah. mentioned in the smart home episodes. Like uh, if you ever use that feature where it tracks the porch, porch pirates, pirates yeah. yeah, it's pretty credible. Like some crowdsourcing, you can really start to figure out like what time of day it's happening, who's doing it. You can even watch the videos yourself and see if you recognize the person, like pretty nuts. All right, Brian. So as we're wrapping up here, as the article comes to a close, it's asking Amy here, are you suggesting we don't need those billion dollar surveillance satellites anymore? And, and she says, no, I'm, I'm not saying that, but there is a skyrocketing number of commercial satellites that already provide valuable intelligence insights. So she talks about earlier this year, SpaceX launched 143 small satellites in one launch. One launch, right? CubeSats, wow. right? those small ones too. Tiny, tiny little satellites. Setting a world record. So increasingly, commercial satellites are offering better resolutions. They can detect manhole covers and different models of cars from space. That's uh, some pretty good resolution there. That is powerful. And, and then because there are constellations of these small satellites, some of which are the size of a shoebox, the the revisit rate is much faster. So they can fly over the same place on Earth many times a day, which means you can see changes happening on the ground. You can detect changes in traffic patterns, you know, kind of the ways thing. Again, there's so many different ways to, to analyze what's going on out there and then what's going in and out of a port. So, you know, the port of Los Angeles, the port of Miami, whatever, whatever's going on, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, in fact, there's a whole ecosystem of non-government nuclear threat and analysts who do incredible work and use only commercially available imagery and machine learning tools. And then they used a, an example here that on July the 2nd of last year, a weather satellite picked up a fire in Iran at what looked like a construction shed. Now, that image got onto Twitter. Within a few hours, two non-government nuclear analysts, one in Washington, D.C. and one in California, concluded the fire had actually been an explosion at Iran's heavily guarded centrifuge facility, which enriches uranium. So it was worldwide news by that afternoon, but by that night, the Israeli prime minister was being asked whether Israel had sabotaged the plant. All this came from open source, non-government, governmental intelligence, and it all happened in one day. It's crazy. It's oh. so fast. So when are you starting that company? <laughs> so uh, this is your interview. Do you know that? <laughs> Uh, you, you must have a um, GoFundMe page somewhere then. Uh, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. And so just to, to wrap this up, so the, the kind of the final question that was being asked here uh, was that um, the report mentions the challenges of disinformation that foreign adversaries will increasingly be able to flood U.S. intelligence with fake intelligence. So we talked a little bit about this, and it could become very hard for intelligence analysts to tell the difference between legitimate information and misdirection. So the Amy answers here, basically, wherever there's information, there's going to be deception, of course, right? It's spycraft. But the more powerful the data, the more it's going to come under attack. That's the world we live in today. So data is the new battleground, and that increasingly is going to require the intelligence community to be a verifier of last resort. So like you said, uh, fact checkers. Yeah, it's really what it is. So how do we know what's true and what isn't? Well, you know, we're going to need experts in the intelligence community who know. 
And uh, if we don't, well, then that's going to be a different story, right? <laughs> so we'll need to have experts who can tell us about the data poisoning. Uh, that's an interesting term, data poisoning. Kind of like that one. And it really is. It, it's a spy versus spy battle. Well, what a topic. Yeah, that was a great discussion. I mean, it just personally makes me feel very excited that someone that did take the route of computer science and user X design can has the possibility to, to be the next James Bond. Whew. Man, times have changed, haven't they? Well, I think just to wrap it up, what, what's important that the takeaway here is all the episodes that we've done so far on this podcast, it's really just, it's, it's trying to make people more aware about all the vectors where your information is being leaked out and just being more careful about it just in general, right? It doesn't mean you have to be paranoid. There, of course, there are people that just want to completely disappear online and that's fine, but it's kind of hard to not have a life that includes some online access. I mean, it's just the way the world is, but just be careful. There's so much information out there. Think twice before you make that post on, on Instagram. Right? Yeah, you're not just sharing it with your friends and family anymore. You're sharing it with everyone. Yeah, you just, you can't envision what that data might be used for in the future, but it's just be careful because you hear stories all the time, like to bring it to a more personal level, like people that don't get jobs or people who get fired because of something they posted on, on social media, right? Just, just be careful what you're doing, right? It's everything out there can be, can be found in this open source world. Um, and it's, it might not, it might seem pretty innocuous in isolation. One little thing here, one, oh, I left my email address when I went to Best Buy because they wanted to send me, you know, coupons or something. And it's like, ah, oh, it seems so simple and easy, but that adds up over time. You know, I'd, I'd love to see what the profile is on Mr. Metaverse. Hmm. What does that data profile look like? Yeah, I don't know. It could be a little bit like you figure out I'm a pretty big nerd, actually. <laughs> Brian, I thanks. I thank you so much for uh, for coming here and doing this uh, with me today. And uh, hopefully, we're going to do a lot more of these in in the near future because you got some really good ideas on the on the future where technology is headed, and it, and they're thought provoking topics. Really, it's what they are. Yeah, love just having discussions about it because if you're not talking about you know where it could go and what it could do, you're going to get left behind. And I don't want to do that. Okay, thanks, thanks, Brian, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you again here uh, on the podcast real soon, hopefully. Yeah. See you soon. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, Sarah will be back as we observe World Password Day. That's right. There's a World Password Day. And this year, it's May 4th. And you know what that means. May the 4th be with you. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.